Hi, everyone. I'm Rain, and welcome to episode 49 of For Good or For Awesome. I am here with my friend Jamie. Hi, and just a reminder, even though we are both good and awesome, the actual name of the show is Greater Than Code, and I'm here today with my good friend Coraline. Hey, everybody. It's Coraline, as Jamie mentioned. Um, you may know me from such podcasts as Greater Than Code, For Good or For Awesome, and many others. We have a very special guest with us today, but before we introduce our guest, I wanted to mention that this episode is brought to you by Upside, one of DC's fastest growing tech startups. Upside's looking for innovative engineers who want to disrupt the norm, and they're always hiring. Check out upside.com slash team to learn more. We're very thankful for our sponsors. If you would like to sponsor us at any level, go to patreon.com slash greater than code, and you'll gain exclusive access to our patron-only Slack community. If your company would like to sponsor us, please send them to greaterthancode.com slash sponsors for a prospectus. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce Rain Aubrey. Rain is a 19-year-old student entrepreneur. He's launched five businesses. The most recent of those is Pocket Change, which is a tech company harnessing social media for good. Rain has won a variety of awards, recognitions, and competitions, and is currently the youngest competitor ever to be in the Denver Startup Week's $100,000 pitch challenge as a semifinalist. Welcome, Rain. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. So, Rain, um, the first question we ask any guests on our show is, what is your superpower and when and how did it develop? I would say that my superpower is my ability to really listen to people and understand uh, kind of where people are coming from on things. I think that everybody's got a really interesting perspective and you can't really assume anything about anyone um, based on, you know, what you can see. It takes a lot of time to get to know somebody. And I guess my superpower would be I'm willing to spend that time getting to know people as people versus as a label or as whatever group they fall in or anything like that, I think. Uh, that definitely has come from kind of my background. I'm originally from Hawaii. Um, I'm a, a white male, um, but I've always been a minority um, in kind of a, a loose sense of the word because Hawaii is very predominantly, you know, other ethnicities and it's definitely one of the biggest melting pots in the U.S. Um, so I've really been able to kind of shift how I see people and how I view people um, and really come at them um, and come at all interactions and conversations uh, with a, a kind of open mind and my ability, I think, to hear people for people and listen to people for people is really, really um, kind of unique in terms of the way I look at the world. It's interesting that that was part of your upbringing. I think that that sort of learning, that sort of ability to understand people generally develops as we mature. So was that something that you even experienced in your childhood? Oh, incredibly. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was all about the people that I surrounded myself with. You know, I had, I think, two white friends out of all, you know, all everything else. And I never really kind of understood how unique that was because that was the only frame of reference that I had. You know, Hawaii is one of the most isolated landmasses in the world. And um, when you're there, that kind of just becomes your whole life. And so having that and having that kind of be a part of me from, you know, since I was a little kid, um, I think was kind of really interesting. You know, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to come out here and say like, oh, this is super unique or this is great or anything like that. But I think that it's, it just gives me kind of an interesting perspective on people and the way things work. And now that I'm out in Denver for school, um, and the school that I go to is a predominantly kind of more affluent white school. Um, it's been a really interesting shift for me and kind of an interesting challenge of how I, how I do business and how I think about myself and who I am, um, and all of that. So what, what's it like? I guess, integrating into a predominantly white 
group, you know, group of people when you come from a much more diverse upbringing? It's really weird. It's, uh, I think that the biggest thing that I noticed that was weird was that a lot of people never really had thought about the, you know, their race or their background or that kind of thing. Usually college is, you know, I don't want to generalize, but you know, for a lot of people, college is kind of the first time that we were able to have those discussions and kind of a safe area or a brave area. I just, I just thought it was really interesting. And so coming into it, I really had to understand that and understand that other people were not coming from the same place that I was coming from in terms of their understanding of, you know, all of these different things. And that's not to say that I understand, you know, the struggles of all of the things that are going on right now, because I definitely don't. I'm still a white male. But I think that coming to the school and being faced with people who had never thought about race um, or never thought about kind of their privilege was really an interesting thing debate for me. And I had to approach it with an open mind and had to constantly remind myself of that. If someone would say something that was, you know, ignorant or, you know, they didn't know something, I kind of viewed it um, as my responsibility to be willing to call it out, not to have the answers, but to just be willing to have a conversation about something that I wasn't comfortable with or something along those lines. That's something that I wish more white people and more white males would take responsibility for. I think a lot of the emotional labor and a lot of the work being done to address racism in this country is being done by people of color. And there's, you know, this persistent message on Twitter that people of color cannot end racism. It, it requires white people talking to their racist families, talking to their racist friends, calling out racism when they see it in public. And um, it's really refreshing to see that at 19 years old, you have an understanding of that. And at 19 years old, you're brave enough to do that. It's interesting. I was actually reading a book called Tribes by Seth Godin that I know a lot of other entrepreneurs have read, and it talks a lot about culture of a company. If you'll allow me to go down this tangent real quick, uh, the, a culture of a company is defined by the kind of least amount of something that you'll stand for, um, your your baseline, your cutoff point. Um, and I think that I was actually having this debate yesterday and this conversation yesterday that in terms of when issues come up or there's something that you know is not okay or you're not comfortable with, regardless of if that situation is resolved by you saying something, Setting the line of this is okay and this is not okay is fundamentally incredibly important um, because it kind of sets the tone for your community. Um, and then if we can get enough people to set the tone and set the line that this is not okay and this is okay in super small ways, I think that's how we push something forward. It's not through big programs or, you know, massive marketing campaigns or, you know, viral Twitter videos. I think it comes from a whole lot of people coming together and saying, hey, this is not okay and this is what I stand for in my personal life. I think I totally agree with that. And I think that even if, you know, if you say something in the moment to someone and you don't change their mind, A, maybe they'll think about it later and like start to internalize that information kind of slowly. And B, even if they're maybe not listening to you, maybe someone else who is listening is listening to you and is getting something out of that, which I think about a lot when we're having these kind of dis discussions online, that if I make a comment to someone, maybe it's not getting through to them in the way I hope, but who knows how many other people are going to read that comment. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I really like what you said. I assume that's a Seth Godin quote that, um, and it's about how much of something you'll tolerate. And I think that in our politics currently, we're seeing some people calling for tolerance of ideas that are actually damaging to our society and our culture in our country. And other people are saying rightly so that there is no space in the public discourse for people who hold opinions about other people being subhuman, but other people being inferior. And it really comes down to what we as a country will tolerate. 
So, Rain, you've described yourself a couple of times already as an entrepreneur. Um, I'd like to hear more about how you got into being an entrepreneur. And I'd also like to hear about your new company, Pocket Change. Is that it? Yep, that's correct. Tell us about it. Sure. So Pocket Change is my first foray into uh, using technology for social good. Um, I believe that kind of at our core, entrepreneurs solve problems, but traditionally we've been using entrepreneurship to solve pain points, not problems. Um, you know, anything from convenient travel to, you know, booking, more convenient email, productivity, whatever it is. Um, and we're leaving the really, really big problems unaddressed, you know, climate change, racism, gender inequality, LGBTQ plus rights. And so uh, I really wanted to see if there was a way that I could use technology and my passion for business um, in a way that really benefited the world and left something bigger than just, you know, uh, an IPO or a acquisition or something along those lines. Um, so Pocket Change is a technology that we're working on creating that aims to target the moment when someone is really genuinely motivated into action and remove all the barriers for that action. So right now we're creating a button that sits on Facebook next to every piece of content and lights up when you see a post about a cause. So a post about a cause could be anything from an article about Hurricane Irma to a video about poverty. Um, maybe it's a live stream about a crisis in another country, whatever it is, any cause in any area. Our button will uh, read that post and analyze that post, um, determine a specific cause from that post that you know relates to it. So for example, if there's a video about climate change, uh, our technology will be able to identify that it is a video about climate change. Then we have a research team um, that analyzes all charities that do work in the area of climate change and trying to tackle climate change and determines the single most impactful organization that's tackling that issue. And then in two clicks, we allow our users to donate 25 cents to $2 to that organization all within the page. So again, in the moment someone really wants to do something, we remove all the barriers for that action. We're kind of creating a like button that actually makes a difference. So one of the, one of the interesting things we have to do um, is choose charities and evaluate charities. You know, our belief is that we don't have to be experts on every topic. We just have to be experts on how we go about choosing charities and what makes a good charity and what makes a poor charity. Um, and so we've uh, spent a lot of time researching and uh, doing a lot of work in that space. Yeah, what are your evaluation criteria? I'm really curious about that. Sure. So we do basically two things. We look at quantitative and we look at qualitative. So we start by trimming based on efficiency. Um, when you're only donating 25 cents to $2, it's really, really crucial that that charity is actually using the money. Um, I think it's always crucial that a charity is making sure that they're using the money for program expense uh, rather than purely administrative or, you know, CEO salaries. We, we've all heard the stories of these massive charities, you know, ripping people off and taking their donations. So Red Cross, the first, yes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we uh, we really make sure that all the charities that we work with are spending the vast majority of their money on the actual programs and are running a lean mean machine. And then we basically select charities based on diversity of program, um, along with a lot of other things. We look at leadership and we look at um, vision and we look at, you know, areas in ge geographic areas and how they're adapting and using kind of asset-based programs and all of that kind of thing. But we understand that for the problems that we're looking at, which are called wicked problems, wicked problems are essentially problems that are really, really hard to solve and can't be solved by a simple kind of cause and effect solution. Um, you know, so things like climate change and racism and all the examples I've mentioned before. And the way to solve wicked problems, according to current kind of literature um, and uh, example and testing and all of that, is you solve them by tackling it from a variety of different angles. There's no one solution to any of these problems, but a variety of solutions brought together um, becomes incredibly powerful. So we look at programs 
um, and charities that have programs in a kind of a really diverse set of uh, areas. You know, anything from, you know, perhaps with climate change, there are definitely things that they need to do, for example, in short-term fixes, you know, providing food and, you know, resources like immediately. Um, but then also the really more important thing is, you know, lobbying in the government and making sure that laws are created and running educational programs so that people understand things, setting up recycling programs so that it's easier for people to do that, um, marketing campaigns and awareness campaigns to really, you know, let people know what's going on and trying to engage and tackle the problem from a variety of different angles. So we really work with charities that are great at um, a lot of different things in terms of tackling the problem and if provided the right amount of funding could scale those solutions and really make a massive impact on that issue. Do you make that evaluation data public? Yes, yes. We, uh, we're we still we're finalizing it in the next two weeks. Um, it's been pretty crazy. We just got into Denver Startup Week and if we won, that would really speed up our development time. So we've been focusing all of our energy on that. Um, but in the next two weeks, we will publish all of the information on how we choose charities, specifics on why we chose each charity and our whole process. And you'll get to meet the research team and all of that at pocketchange.social slash charities. That page isn't up. But in the next two weeks, it will be with all of the information that we need. And then we're also really looking at how can we make the thing smarter? Because we fully acknowledge and understand, you know, as 19 year old students, and you know, we have some older people on our, our team as well. But as primarily young people, we're never going to have all the answers to all of these things. And we're never going to be the smartest person in the room. Our power is the ability to acknowledge that. So we're looking at trying to figure out ways to incorporate all of the brilliance of our pocket changer community and get all of that involved in our charity selection process. So, you know, starting with a simple send us your feedback, updates, all of that kind of stuff, but then trying to figure out a smarter way to go about um, evaluating charities and harnessing the people that are donating through us and to us to make that process a lot smarter and constantly improve and get better. To be honest, I think that this list of charities evaluated by all of these criteria alone is like a great contribution. And that's not even really your end products, maybe the wrong word, but like your end goal, like the end goal mm-hmm. is to actually have people donating to these. Um, I'm really interested about the fact that it's donating between 25 cents and $2. I feel like there was research and decision making that went into that. Is that true? Yeah, there was, a, there was definitely a lot of it. And we're still, we're still testing. I mean, as all of you know, testing is constantly something you do as an entrepreneur when you're building a product. It's launching and testing and launching and testing and launching and testing, right? But we set on 25 cents to $2 because our real belief is that donation is hard and it shouldn't be. We really want to create something that people can get behind and use without, you know, feeling guilted into it, without feeling like it's going to hurt their wallet or they're not going to be able to pay rent, um, without any of that. We really want to habitize donation. Our belief is that exactly what we were talking about before, if we can get a lot of people to come together in a really small way, it creates a super, super powerful and beautiful world where people can say, you know, you know, whether we disagree politically, whether we disagree about all of these different things, we can agree that people are hungry and that they need food. And we can agree that, you know, this, this issue is bad or that this is not something that we're willing to stand for. And we can bring people together. And that simply doesn't happen when you set $50 paywalls that exclude so many people. So um, it also doesn't happen when we're just on Facebook, which we acknowledge. You know, it also doesn't happen when we're just using technology. Um, because a lot of people don't have access to that. So we're trying to figure out ways to get around that, but we have to choose the paths of least resistance for now. So we set the 25 cents to $2 to really habitize how people donate and make it something that 
people can donate without feeling bad about or out without feeling like it's something that they're guilted into doing or forced to do or anything like that to remove all the stigma and difficulty and baggage that comes along with donation and really simplify that whole process. That's really cool. I'm interested in understanding how you get your data about the charities. I know that there are charity watches and things like that that publish some information, but what do you do that's different from them and how, how do you analyze these charities? So we we do use a lot of the online databases out there. There's some really great ones that pull directly from IRS filings that charities are required to file and file legally. <laughs> um, so we, we use uh, GuideStar, Charity Navigator, um, and Charity Watchdog sometimes to uh, really pull our data. The biggest thing that we do is we aggregate. Um, so we don't necessarily, you know, we don't fly out to the charities and interview them and do any of that stuff because it's just simply not scalable for what we're trying to do. Um, but what we do do is we make sure that we pull information and find any conflicts between information um, from a variety of different sources and make sure that that information is accurate. Um, so we know kind of all of the numbers to look at, uh, whether that's administrative costs, program expenses. Um, we, we look at percentage uh, of executive team salaries um, based on donations, restricted versus unrestricted funding, um, where uh, donations are coming from, you know, whether it's coming from foundations or whether it's coming from individuals, whether it's coming from a specific area, um, all of that kind of stuff. So we, we really try and look at donations and, and charities as honestly and ana- analytically as possible um, and then be as transparent with that data as possible so that anytime you donate, you have access to all the same information that we do. And if you disagree with us, that's completely okay. And we understand that, you know, everybody's going to have a different philosophy and perspective on things. So we enable users to input their own charities if they like one better or choose one of our other options. We provide three options um, if you do not like our default um, so that users really do feel empowered while uh, at the same time still simplifying the whole process for them and not having to have you and your wife kind of go through and see if you can figure out what charity, like what charity is actually going to donate the money and what charity is just going to take it and have a $40,000 lunch. We, we also kind of believe that no one's really done what we're trying to do before. Um, and if we can do it well, we can really become a very trusted name in the charity space, whether you use pocket change or not. Um, our belief is that if we can choose great charities and more people donate to great charities, that's amazing for us. If we can laser focus people on donating to just the best charities, um, it becomes really, really impactful. And, you know, maybe pocket change isn't the right tool for anyone. Maybe people don't use Facebook or, you know, whatever it is, maybe they want to donate more. Um, and so we want to make sure that all of our information on charities is super easily accessible to anyone, regardless of if you use pocket change or not. I'm really curious kind of mechanically how pocket change is structured. Do you have a team of data scientists that's working on that charity data? Or who's doing that work and, and sort of what specialization do they bring to that process? Basically, what we do is we have a team of people um, that follow the process we outline. And then we also have an advisory board um, of people that go in and look at charities and, you know, real, real experts in the field. Uh, we use a lot of actually, it's kind of funny. We don't really use too many data scientists because, you know, while charities are very database, there also is a lot of value to kind of the qualitative side of it. Um, so we actually on our uh, advisory board team have a lot of social venture capitalists and social um, investors. So anyone from we have there's a big organization here called uh, Betcher um, and there's a lot of basically rich foundations that do a lot of investing in social good projects. Um, and then we have a lot of their uh, team on our advisory board to help, you know, refine the process. The head of 
philanthropy at Western Union is a big one that we have on the team. Um, so we, we have a process and we standardize that process so that everyone has access to it and can see the information that we're working with and how we choose things. And we really standardize our decision making. And we really believe that that's important for our transparency. But then we also have a team of ridiculously smart, ridiculously talented people who help make the process smarter and who can make decisions if something goes wrong. So how did you come to decide on this project? Where did you get the original idea? You know, what made you decide that this is what the thing you, you wanted to focus your energy on? Funny enough, it was the idea came from I was cramped into our, these tiny showers we had in our freshman dorms last year. Um, and I was sitting in there and I was was thinking about I had just seen something on Facebook and like 20 million people had seen, had watched this video and shared it. And everyone was saying, this is so sad. I wish I could do something. Um, and I started thinking about, you know, this happens every day, millions of times a day. And everyone seems to want to do something, but there's no way for us to target it in that moment. And usually ideas don't happen as eureka moments, but this one kind of did. Going back a little bit further than just that moment of kind of ideation and creation was I had run a hoverboard company back home um, about a year prior. Um, and it became the most successful hoverboard company in the state. The hover hoverboard being the two-wheel self-balancing devices that were pretty popular um, in 2015. And I launched that company and run that company and it was doing really, really well. And I remember I got, I was really lucky in it because I got to face a lot of things that many people don't get to face. And I got to face it when I was 17. So I remember one day I was in my room and we just made a whole bunch of sales right in the middle of the Christmas season. Um, and I was counting all of this money to be deposited into our bank account. And I remember thinking, well, this is pretty boring. If this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life, if the end goal is to make cash that I can buy useless things with, it's just a waste of my time. You know, I think that we all have an opportunity to do something bigger than just that. And so I am a firm, firm believer that we should use the things we're passionate about in a way that really benefits the world. Now, that's not to say that other projects don't, but it's just something that I was really lucky enough to kind of be brought to my attention and face at 17. Um, and then I, so I really, I knew that I wanted in that moment, I had kind of decided that the next project I wanted to do would be a social venture, um, without a doubt. I knew that I loved business and I was in love with the business process, but I didn't want the end goal to be profit. Um, so I wanted to launch a business that really helped help the world. And kind of going back to one of my first points was, I think that over the next 20 years, it's going to be one of the most interesting periods of time that we've ever seen. I think that a lot of things are coming to a point in the next 20 years, you know, whether it's, you know, the clock ticking on climate change or the incredible racial tensions and things that have been bubbling up um, in our country, all of the debates that we've been having, um, resources running low. I think that a lot of things are coming to the head definitely in our lifetime. And those problems, I think, are massive opportunities for you to actually do something that really helps a lot of people, um, not just solves a problem for the minutia of people who have 98% of the problems in their life already solved. I think that there's, there's massive opportunity to really help others kind of increase social standing and bring people onto the same page and empower people all around the world that isn't just focused on, okay, who's the 1% of rich Americans who can, you know, afford to buy our SaaS product. I think that it's really, really important that we target problems that are bigger than, bigger than the things that we traditionally face in business. I know that's, it's definitely not an easy thing and most businesses like that will fail 
potentially pocket change included, obviously. But I think that there's nothing more important than giving that a shot. I'm really impressed. Like, this is a big idea and it's great. But I'm also really impressed that you had kind of the background and the experience and the resources uh, to put this together into like a real company at age 19. Um, and you talked about loving business. I'd like to hear a little bit more about your path into business and entrepreneurship and some of the other projects that you've worked on previous to this. Sure. So I guess the, technically the very first entrepreneurial venture I did was a lemonade stand um, when I was six years old. I think a, a lot of people can relate to that. But I, I vividly remember I did one day of the lemonade stand and I that's I remember vividly learning about cost of goods sold because I made all this money and I was super excited and then my parents were like, okay, now you got to pay us back for the cups and pay us back for the blah, blah, blah and everything. And I was like, oh man, this isn't fun. So I did, there was, I did one day of that lemonade stand and then I was like, okay, I can do that, but it's not like my full potential. So I hired a bunch of my neighborhood friends, um, in my community and we actually, they actually ran the lemonade stand and I was the marketer for the lemonade stand. So I went to the pool, the local pool and I gave out, you know, like little pieces of paper that said, you know, come outside and get like 25 cents off of our lemonade or something like that. And I remember kind of running around and getting the business more into a legit business. And now I wish I could say it turned into some multi-million dollar lemonade franchise. It did not. Um, Lemonade.io. Yeah, exactly. Right. Lemonadely, we're now a tech startup. So that was, that was my very first venture into the business world. And I was always doing entrepreneurial things, but I'd never known that I was entrepreneurial until eighth grade. Um, you know, I, I, in like seventh grade, I started to, or in fifth grade, I started, I tried to do a breakdancing class and charge my friends a nickel, which was not super profitable. Um, and then I tried to trade currency in seventh grade. And um, so I was always doing things that were entrepreneurial, but I never knew that that was a legit path that I could go down um, until my mom bought me this book called Start It Up um, by Kenya. I believe her name is Kenya Rogins or Kenya. I'm not sure. I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll go ahead and get that to Mandy um, if anyone wants to read it. It's an incredible book about getting started. And so she got me that book and I remember reading about it and seeing, holy smokes, there's all of these people out there that this is what they do full time. Like they get to run businesses and bigger than anything I've ever dreamed about. You know, they get to have tens of thousands of people on their team, um, all working together towards a goal and all, you know, everyone serving a function that's crucial to the business. And it's kind of like this beautiful, I think business is one of the greatest art forms in the world because it's so difficult to get two people to work together, let alone 10,000. So it's, it's pretty incredible. Um, and I remember reading about that and was like, okay, holy smokes, this thing's legit. And then I started an online business. I sold uh, my old Legos. I figured out I had eight giant bins of Legos. I was a huge Lego nut as a kid. I, I made stop motion animation videos and I, I loved Legos. And I was like, okay, I, I no longer want these Legos and I want to give that to other people because I love them so much. And I figured out that there was a, there was a missing piece in the, in the eBay market, um, where if you package them up in a hundred piece sets, um, and put a minifigure in each of them, um, they made awesome stocking stuffers. And so I did that and I wrapped each one and I put, uh, you know, a sticker that said love, happiness and Legos on it and sold eight bins in, I think, a month or two. Um, and then started needing some more supply. So I 
started going on Craigslist and buying other people's lots and packaging them up into smaller lots. And I actually started buying my competitor sets and breaking them up into, you know, smaller sets and selling them and earning more, which is pretty funny. And then I got into a whole bunch of other businesses, buying and reselling things on Craigslist, which I found a lot of fun in. And then, uh, you know, I scaled out and eventually built a Lego minifigure company, um, where we made custom minifigures, um, and packaged them in sets and we're selling thousands of them. Um, and that was really fun. And then the hoverboard company and now pocket change. Uh, you talked about having 10,000 people on your team. And I think that's uh, a wonderful sentiment, sentiment. Um, but in, you know, the traditional model of business, the way it sort of works is that it's a hierarchical, top-down, almost totalitarian structure where people get told by the people above them who get told by the people above them what to do. So I sense that that may not be how you want to do things. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's definitely correct. I mean, I want to put a qualifier on that. I think that you know, 10,000 people can't be reporting to one person, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I'm a big believer that good things don't happen by somebody telling you to do them. They happen by everyone being super invested in it. Um, and I think the best companies really, really understand that um, and really value every single person on the team. One thing we do at the company that a friend of mine just told me about and we adapted it, or uh, sorry, adopted it in two hours was... We don't call anybody employees. Um, we call them team members or changers for pocket change. Um, and so my real belief is that everybody has something to offer and siloing people into your marketing so you can't look at tech or your tech so you can't look at sales or your accounting or whatever it is really misses out on some really, you know, kind of hidden talents that people have. For example, at Pocket Change, you know, it's obviously not 10,000 people. We're, we're a team of six people. But at Pocket Change, we were putting together a pitch for the Denver Startup Week, actually. And I'm traditionally the pitch person. I've won all of the pitch awards. And that's definitely one of my strong suits. But one of our uh, people on our tech team came out and was like, I think you should word it this way. And it was perfect. It was exactly what I was missing. And that wouldn't have happened if it was like your tech. So tell your manager to tell their manager to tell that manager to get it over and send an email or whatever it is. And so I think that the best businesses can come when there's real cross-disciplinary interaction that happens between people. Um, and so we try and do that at Pocket Change. It's obviously real easy when it's six people and we're all, you know, can hop on a Skype call together. It's a lot harder. 10,000 people can hop on a Skype call together. But I want to try and build businesses in ways that that makes sense for. I did some consulting for Starbucks, I guess maybe 10 years ago now, some tech consulting. And I was really impressed by one of the things they did. Well, first of all, similar to what you were saying, everyone at Starbucks was, um, I believe they called them partners. They actually did a thing where regardless of your position at the company, even the, at the VP or CEO level, you had to work a certain number of hours every year at one of the stores doing the job. And I was really impressed with how people at every level, regardless of their area of specialization, be it tech or marketing or what have you, had intimate knowledge of what happened at the store. And they were super focused on you know, making the people at the stores efficient and happy and in turn making customers happy. And I think it's really valuable kind of baking that in your culture. Do you have any plans for how how to, you know, kind of codify that so that if hopefully as pocket change grows, you maintain that sort of culture of cross pollination? Yeah, definitely. 
Um, so we, we do a couple things right now and I want to keep them super involved as we grow as a company. Um, some of this was stolen from my incredible mentor at a company called Full Contact. His name's Drew. Um, and he's really helped me a lot, um, with how you go about doing this. So we do a couple things. One is we have every week, we have weekly standups where everyone talks about what they're working on. Um, and everyone else can kind of put in their two cents and, uh, they can bounce ideas around the room and all of that kind of stuff. Any issues that they're coming up with, all of that. And then we also, you know, charity selection is obviously a big part of our business. We've talked about that a lot. Everyone on the team, from our head of technology to, you know, our head of marketing, all of that, we all go and we all are going to be working in choosing charities um, for parts of our job. Um, I think it's crucially important that everyone on the team can justify exactly how we go about doing that. Um, and people are a lot more unified if we can understand like, oh, I understand this issue because I ran into it as well when I was doing it. And then so obviously, like, I'm not a technical person. Um, so I can't hop into Mark's code. Mark is our head of technology. I can't hop into Mark's code and try and understand everything that he's doing. Um, but what I can do is I can have a conversation with him during our weekly standup about the issues that he's facing and see what I can do and how I can understand those issues better. So, you know, as a team member, I can help in whatever way, whatever. Maybe there's something that I heard about that I was like, oh, I read something somewhere and he goes that's perfect that's what i was looking for every week we have this weekly stand-up where people uh bounce around what they're working on and you know the issues that they're facing and everyone hears about it and puts in their two cents and debates and all that and then everyone goes through and does kind of the lowest more grind part of our business which is the charity selection side and then we also want to incorporate as much as possible roundtable kind of discussion about vision and all of that kind of stuff into what we're doing. You know, I am the founder and CEO, but uh, that doesn't mean that I'm the only one with good ideas at the company. By no means is that what that means. So we, we try and incorporate that into everything that we do. One of the things that I've always wanted to try to do is to bring sort of um, anarchist organizing principles into business. It's very easy to do it when there are six people or 10 people. But the harder questions are, what do you do when there are 500 people, how do you organize that in a way that isn't hierarchical and bureaucratic? Uh, and there's, you know, there's a bunch of prior art here that might be interesting to you. One of the concepts is uh, syndicalism. So basically, people get together and form uh, temporary, voluntary, function-based teams, and then they sort of federate responsibility and organize at a higher level by sending delegates and things like that. I really, really like that. And we're still figuring it out. I mean, we don't put a ton of thought into it because we are six people. Um, but it's something that I think is potentially one of the most important parts of the business. So there's um, there's an essay by Colin Ward called Anarchism as a Theory of Organization that was published in 1966. You can find it free online and you should read it and see what you think. Awesome. Thanks. I will. Rain H, I'm curious. How do you see that working in <laughs> practice? Let's say... Let's say I have a, a tech company of a hundred people and hopefully I'm yeah. doing something for social good. How does that syndicalism actually work in practice? Well, I think one of the, the questions is always how do you take a small, uh, you know, groups of individuals and give them a common purpose and, and manage their work at a higher level? And the answer is we don't really know. We can barely do it in a hierarchical structure as it is, you know, given how many companies uh, are failing to do that. But the basic idea is that the role of a CEO in a company is a function that the company needs. It doesn't make you the master of the people that you work with. 
right? So there are functions that are necessary to organize and provide structure to the company that don't require you to be put into a dominance relationship with other people in the company. They're just a function that has to happen. And someone who's good at that function should be elected to do it. And it could even be that someone does that for, uh, or, uh, you know, a small team does that and members rotate in and out. There are ways to organize that don't just grant the privilege of royalty to whoever happens to have the title of CEO at the time. So for me, I, th- I think the sort of the four fundamental principles are organization should be voluntary. It should be based on function. It should be temporary and it should be as much as possible small. And when you need to build bigger things, you elect members and you, you delegate responsibility in, in the same way for a period of time for a particular purpose. I love that. I, I want to be in an organization like that. Me too. I know that Jeff Bezos has a great rule, the two pizzas rule. If your team uh, can't be fed by two pizzas, it's too big. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. Um, and it's great. Yeah. Uh, some of this goes back to sort of human nature and tribal sizes and the the number of relationships we can hold in our head with other people because it's a nonlinear thing. You know, it grows as the the power set of all of the people is how many different relationships you can form at any one time. And so people have said like 150 people is the most you can have in a village before people don't know each other and things like that. Mm-hmm. I'm really impressed that you have kind of this background in business where like, you know, turning a profit is such an important part of that culture in many ways. And then you kind of took that and were, were able to say, turning a profit isn't the most important thing for me. You know, I want to do something important. And I'm curious if you have any advice for like other people that are in business and entrepreneurship, maybe have existing companies and like how to integrate social entrepreneurship into what they're already doing, if that makes sense. Sure. I think that one thing that's really great that a lot of companies can do relatively easily is one, as much as possible, create something, a a space for people to share new ideas. Um, but then once you do that, make sure that all of your employees take, you know, maybe three days out of the year or a week out of the year to go volunteer with local organizations. If employees and team members, uh, went out and into the communities and volunteered and saw problems in their communities firsthand, um, they could bring something, some of that back to the business and say, Hey, I just volunteered at a recycling organization and for our company lunches, we use all plastics. Like maybe we can convert and, you know, we'll make that and then we become a little bit more green. Um, and so I think that that's one great policy that people can have is, you know, make sure that everybody at the company really gets out into the community and sees real problems that are happening. And then the other thing is I think it really, if, if it's a shift in how a company operates, it really has to come down to the leadership team of that company setting the example. So you can't come out and say, we're now a green company. Uh, we're now we're we're now a socially responsible company, and then the leadership doesn't follow those practices. Um, so I think it's really crucial that leadership not only follow common understanding and common practice around social issues, but also that they really have an understanding of the issues that they're passionate about and that they w- are wanting to solve. Um, a brand that I think does it really well, and we work with a lot of brands that are socially conscious. It's one of the ways that we actually make money at Pocket Change. Um, but one brand that I think does it immensely well is Stella Artois, the beer company. Um, their founders really, really understand and really care about clean water. And so they've recently just started a partnership with water.org, um, a multi-million dollar, um, donation partnership, 
Um, and, you know, we could talk about, you know, charity selection and all of that for the rest of the time. But the, the core intent of that was the founders understand that this is a major issue. They understand that their business is uniquely situated to be able to set an example in the market for a company caring about clean water. And there, it all came from the leadership and leadership pairing with water.org. Um, and so I think a leader setting that example for the rest of their team and saying, Hey, this is as a company, this is who we are. We believe that we can use our business to do good as well as make money. Um, that's what social entrepreneurship is. Um, and if it comes from leadership and if it comes from also every team member who is going out into the community and seeing the problems that are there and seeing how their business might, you know, be able to help tackle that, um, I think then you can really set up your organization for amazing and awesome socially conscious uh, things. I would argue that you cannot be a green company. You cannot be a social aware company because these sorts of things are not things that you are, but they're things that you do. Mm, I love that. I think it's easy to, to make claims and claims require certification and certifications require bureaucracy. I like to say that a value that you hold but don't act on isn't really a value. It's at best aspirational and at worst it's a pretense. I think also people sometimes get very attached to these words that they've used to describe themselves such that even if a value is like an aspiration, something they want to do, people are sometimes too quick to be like, well, I did a good job and now I'm done rather than continuing, you know, working on that and valuing it and devoting yourself to it in your life. Ethics and awareness aren't, they shouldn't be nouns, they should be verbs. I agree. So there's a, a concept in systems thinking called the purpose of a system is what it does. And the idea there is it doesn't matter what you claim the purpose of the system is. What you actually have to look at is what it's doing. And then you'll know what it's, what it's designed to do. And so you can be a company with all of these values. And like Coraline is saying, if you don't act on those values, then that's not the purpose of your company. The purpose of your company is something else. So, Rain, I'm curious, um, how far along are you in launching Pocket Change? And is there a beta program that people can take advantage of now? And um, if so, what's the what's the sort of process for that? How do they get that button on their Facebook feed? Sure. Um, so we just launched a, a real closed beta, and we, we launched that in uh, mid-June, actually end of June, and gathered a lot of awesome feedback about it, um, but realized that we have a lot more work to do, as we were just talking about. So... Uh, we aren't currently, we don't currently have a product in market that people can download. Uh, what they can do is, is if they go to pocketchange.social, www.pocketchange.social, um, there's a get pocket change button right on the home screen. Um, they can click that and put their email in. Um, and we should have a product in the next few months, um, that will do everything that we really want it to do. We will be launching, uh, early access beta, um, in the next few days. Um, that will, won't really do what we want it to do, but will allow users to create pocket change accounts and get the process started. Um, so if anyone out in the greater than code community is interested in doing that, just go to pocketchange.social and click get pocket change and we'll let you know when we're ready to, uh, have some people hop on the program and start testing it and giving us awesome feedback. Yeah, please do let us know and we'll share with our listeners when that goes live because I think that's, um, that's really worthwhile and it's definitely something that people in our listening community would be very interested in. I have an implementation question, not technical, don't worry. Are you <laughs> in collaboration with Facebook on this, or is this something that you're sort of adding on in a third-party plugin sort of way? Sure. So we're starting as a Google Chrome extension um, because not only does that allow us to overlay on top of Facebook, but 
once someone has it downloaded and once we have our technology built, we can instantly go over to Twitter, to um, you know, any news sites, to Google search results, to email, to anywhere that someone browses. And so we, we're starting as a Google Chrome extension um, because integrating with Facebook is real difficult. Uh, but once we prove ourselves, we're also trying to get mobile, so making a mobile extension um, and then also integrating with a lot of other areas. People see content that inspires them. Uh, so, you know, we're currently talking with Flipboard and Pocket, two big news apps, about integrating our platform there and then a couple other smaller social medias that would be perfectly situated for it. We're also in discussions of how to get that naturally embedded into their platforms, but we still have a lot of work to do on our product. We're starting as a extension just because it allows us to super easily and quickly overlay on top of everything. But the end goal is to integrate into as many platforms as possible. We're still going back and forth between whether we'd want to get kind of acquired by Facebook and be Facebook exclusive or whether we want to remain cross-platform, which is a real distinct selling point for us. So we go back and forth, but right now we're a browser extension. So I, I wanted to ask, as a, a company whose goal is not profit, uh, well, first, are, are you structured as a nonprofit? Are you structured as a corporation? We're structured as a public benefit corporation. So a B Corp? Uh, it's actually, it's a separate entity. Uh, it's a oh. B Corp is a certification that you get. Um, and it's uh. really expensive and there's a lot of great B Corps out there, but many companies, um, will just get that certification to look good. But a public benefit corporation means that you have a dual focus of profit and, and, mm -hmm. you know, for your stakeholders and then also social capital. Cool. So the question I, I wanted to actually ask is, what is it like trying to get money from VC and other investors as a company that's structured like that and doesn't have as strong a profit motive as some other companies? And also, what advice would you give for other entrepreneurs who want to move towards doing stuff for social good? In terms of gathering VC, I can't speak super in depth about it because we're not currently actively raising. Um, I've talked to a lot of VCs and we have a lot of interest, but we're kind of keeping the door shut on VC money right now. I think venture capital can often kill a company before it really gets off the ground because you don't know what you're doing yet. But in terms of actually raising venture capital money, I think investors do want to do good, but they also care that their money comes back and it comes back more. So social entrepreneurship is beautiful because you're not a nonprofit. You're a for-profit company that just understands that there's other problems to be solved out there. In terms of raising that money, it's pretty similar to traditional for-profit companies in terms of, you know, having really good financials and having a plan that makes sense. Um, but then it's also comes down to reaching out to the right investors. So in Colorado, we have a lot of social uh, venture capitalists that want to invest in these types of companies. Um, and so we can harness them. And then also for social entrepreneurship, there's a lot of grant money out there. Um, and grant money is pretty awesome because you don't have to give up any of your company to get it. Um, and there's some pretty incredible things out there um, for companies that are trying to do good. So I would say there's just Google it and reach out. Oftentimes, uh, grant writers will, you know, write grants for free and take a percentage of whatever grant you get. So there's makes total sense to reach out to any grant writers in your area and see if there's any, you know, angel groups that are socially focused in Colorado. We have a couple back home in Hawaii. We have one. So there's there's a pretty decent chance that there's at least a small community somewhere wherever you're located that will allow you to raise raise money in that way and have investors that understand that your business plan is not to IPO in five years or to get acquired in five years. It's to do something bigger and also make money. Cool. And then what, what would you say to someone 
who maybe doesn't have much experience with uh, entrepreneurship or maybe does, but only in the sort of more for-profit areas that want to get into this sort of thing instead? I would say one of the interesting things, speaking to first to people who have done entrepreneurship before, um, one of the biggest things that you'll probably have to face is that it's harder to get honest feedback from people. People don't generally like to uh, quote unquote hate on social ventures. Um, and so it's a lot harder to get like real honest critiques. And so you have to, one way to go about doing that well is to really set up conversations in a way that's like, Hey, we want you to tear this idea apart and that's what will get better. Um, so that's one thing that a lot of for profit to more social enterprise companies have to face. Um, but in terms of people who have never really done entrepreneurship before or are kind of more in that boat, um, and want to build something socially conscious or, um, something along those lines is, in my opinion, I think it's pretty equally difficult to launch a for-profit company um, and a social entrepreneurship company. A problem is a problem. And so definitely there's problems that are easier to solve than others. But a lot of social entrepreneurship, if you can spend the time to understand the issue and talk to the people that can understand the issue, a solution is a solution. And so whether that's applied to you know rural agriculture or whether that's applied to email, it's very similar process in terms of Talk to the people that really understand it. Talk to your customers that would use it or your users or your clients or however you break it down and then go out and start building it. Entrepreneurship is hard, but there's no reason why people can't spend their time um, and their energy trying to do something in a more impactful way um, than just kind of more traditional entrepreneurship. So as you may know, at the end of these podcasts, we like to talk about our reflections on what we've just discussed and anything we may want to leave with our listeners or what's been really meaningful for us. Uh, so for me, uh, I'm, I'm really interested in, I think, especially in these sort of social good entrepreneurship businesses, I think there may be an even, even more of an opportunity there for actually functional horizontal organization. And one of the places I would suggest to go to look into that is uh, there's a socialist who was also a, a uh, management cybernetician named Stafford Beer. And he wrote about organizing companies and businesses like they were neural networks, for instance, some really interesting stuff. So a couple of things that struck me while we were talking, I love what you said about a culture being defined by the least of something that you will tolerate. And I think that that applies in all sort of cultural contexts, um, whether you're talking about a startup or a group of friends or a conference or an organization or a Slack community. And I think that's a really interesting sort of idea, turning the idea of values on their heads and not just saying like, we believe in these things, but also we stand united against these other things. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's a really valuable sort of thing to think about. The other thing, I actually am not a big fan of entrepreneurship because I've been on the receiving end of bad entrepreneurs way too often. But I love your idea that entrepreneurs should solve for problems and not pain points. And I think one thing that the business-minded among our listeners should consider, and even the non-business people among our listeners can consider, is identifying what you call that, what you define as wicked problems. So maybe we don't need yet another startup for food delivery, but maybe we need to work on some of the, the larger issues that are facing our communities and our, and our culture. And I think identifying those wicked problems is a really valuable first step in actually doing some good and changing the world for good. So 
Um, I thought both of those points were really, really interesting. And thank you for sharing those. I was really struck by thinking in depth about this idea that all charities are not created equal. When we want to donate to a cause that we care about, you know, and give our money, it's because we want to make an impact on something that we think is important. And I think there's a bad feeling associated with realizing that like you gave your hard earned money to a charity that, and finding out that then it went to something that you disagree with, even that like that could be, you know, high CEO salaries like we were talking about, or it could even be a charity that is then taking your money and giving it to something you actively disagree with. Like um, there's been a lot of stories about, for instance, like the Salvation Army supporting like anti LGBT stuff. And if you don't know about that, you know, you might be giving money to something that that you don't want. And so I think this idea of like going through finding out which charities are using money efficiently, which charities are using money for the things they say that they're using it for, and which charities are really making a difference is like a huge service. Like even on its own, I think that's something that really struck me as amazing and needed. And why didn't we have this before? And oh my gosh, I'm so glad that we're going to have this. And the fact that that's only part of what you're doing is so amazing to me. So I think that you really kind of hit on a really important thing that had been floating around maybe in a lot of people's heads, but you were able to bring it into like a concrete problem and a solution. And I'm really impressed by that. And I thank you for doing that and for coming and telling us about it. Of course. So I think it was actually you, Coraline, that uh, said this, but a value that isn't acted on is at best an inspiration and is at worst a pretense. Um, I thought that was a really, really interesting concept and something that I kind of want to go back and reflect on with the team um, because every company obviously has or should have a set of core values. But I think that it's very easy to you know let those slip in the day-to-day operations of something. Um, and so I really want to kind of go back and talk with everyone and see how we can go about making sure that everything that we say we do, we will do. I think that's crucial for trust in an organization. Another idea that I really, really like was this idea of non-dominance-based work relationships. Um, I think that it's something that's really crucial. I, I don't really know how you implement it at scale, but I think it's something that we need to be able to figure out if we want to be able to grow in a way that makes sure that we value everyone um, who's a part of the company. And so I want to go back and talk with everyone and see how we can go about figuring out how to implement um, that into all parts of our businesses. And if anyone has any ideas um, or wants to brainstorm or hop on a Skype call or grab coffee if you're in Denver or something along those lines, whatever you would like, um, I'd love to open up the dialogue and conversation around those ideas. Um, so you can email me, rain at pocketchange.social. I'm sure Mandy can put it in the show notes or something along those lines. But yeah, so those were those were my two biggest takeaways that I really got out of this. Great. Well, Rain, it's been an absolute delight talking to you. I think you're very inspirational. I'm very impressed with your acumen and with your devotion to doing some good in the world. And I think we need a lot more of that. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It's been It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And with that, we will wrap up. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we will talk to you again in a couple of weeks. 